It's all about the sauce. The sauce, the sauce. Boy, come and taste the sauce. The sauce, the sauce. She won't give you junk food. I will give you sauce. Hello, what's a guan? And welcome to Tea and Talk, our podcast for moms where we discuss hot pepper topics, chat with notables, influencers, and share our everyday lives with you each week. We're all native Brooklyn Caribbean American moms living in the suburbs and giving you a dose of how we navigate life in the hood, motherhood, sisterhood, childhood, the neighborhood. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you do, like, share, subscribe, and comment. You are Natasha Dion. You are an NAACP Image Award nominee. Amazing. You're a lawyer, a law professor, mother, wife, and author of the critically acclaimed novel, Grace, and founder of The Redeemed. And then there's another novel, um, which is to be released in 2021, which we'll hear more about as we have our conversation today with you. Welcome to Tea and Talk, Natasha. Uh, thank you so much, Colette. I'm so happy to be here. Is it Colette or is it Colette? Like, how do they pronounce you Colette? You know what? It's supposed to be Colette. Oh, but okay. you know, growing up, I didn't like it, you know. Oh. So <laughs> I just tell everybody to call me Colette. So I am ah. Colette. Uh, my mom had a Caribbean accent. So the truth is, we really don't know exactly how it's supposed <laughs> to be pronounced because my whole family gets it all wrong because the American right. kids say it wrong. They say it like they think it should be Colette, right. but they say it Colette. <laughs> I mean, one of my cousins spelt my name in a card, a thank you card. And I realized nobody in my family knows how to spell my name. Like they say it, and it looked like a disease the way he spelled it. I'm like, I do not have Collis. I'm not Collis. So it's pretty crazy. But um, back to you, I, I, we're going to take the questions. Um, we're really um, inspired by so much that you do. Hello. Hello, Hi, Natasha. Ruth. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. How thank are you? I'm doing okay, given the situation that we're in right now. Yeah. But um, I want to tell you, thank you so much for coming on and sharing yourself with us. Tell us about yourself. Ooh, that's a big question. It's a loaded, it's a loaded question. It's, it is. Like, start, 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 start from conception. Start from conception, how you were made. <laughs> okay, so my mom. <laughs> Somewhere in L.A. <laughs> um, you know, so I was born and raised, I was born and partly raised in, right in the city of L.A. Um, in the Black neighborhood, which is like La Brea. It's called La Brea oh, and yeah. Adams. Um, so we walked to church, all black church. Um, and then in maybe mid eighties after that party drug crack cocaine was introduced to our mm -hmm. community. And so many people sort of felt, you know, was come to that. We moved to the suburbs, um, for safety. And then we met a whole other in your face issue of oh, racism. Yeah. Um, the first night we arrived. Um, so it was, so that's sort of, so I grew up in Santa Clarita and I've, I've gotten used to navigating the issues that we're dealing with on, you know, that we deal with anyway, but that's really um, at the forefront of everybody's mind now because of the insurrection mm -hmm. uh, that was egged on by a sitting president, um, which is heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm mourning that, but, um, but not unfamiliar as, you know, black people, especially black women, are with our sons, our husbands, and so on. Um, 
I went to Cal State Long Beach. I didn't plan to go there. Um, I didn't think I was going to go to college. I was told that I would I should go to the military and that would be the best route for me. Um, and I ended up going to a camp. I just by chance or by God, I say, I was in a hair salon. I was about to go to a club. I was getting my hair done. And there was a woman there. Her name was Rita Bryant. And she was from the National Society of Black Engineers. And she had a flyer in her hand. And she said, hey, I know you're going somewhere tonight, but consider, talk to your mom, because I was underage. I was probably 17, 16. She was like, talk to your mom about going to this summer camp. And I was like, I'm so not interested in engineering and I'm not going to college. She was like, well, just think about it. And I was like, she said, I was like, are there going to be boys there? Like black guys? <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, yeah, you know, come for that. But I went there and my mind was blown. It was about mm -hmm. black history. It was about science and just what I was capable of. And I went to that after coming back to that camp, I went back the next year for my senior year. Um, I was a C student at that point. I was getting A's my final year, but it was a little too late after being in high school. And I got accepted into Cal State Long Beach on a special program. And I ended up graduating cum laude with wow. you know, a 3.8 GPA. Oh, you know? really? And then I went to law school. I worked through law school, went to law school at night, worked during the day um, and on the weekends at different jobs. And I put myself through school. And I became a lawyer and I do criminal defense work. Um, and now I do work on people who have been incarcerated for a very long time, trying to get them out. Um, and also people who've made mistakes to help them erase their records so they can move on without the stigma of that past. Oh, oh. Mm -hmm. oh. That's amazing. Yeah. Yes. I yeah. commend your commitment because I, I couldn't even go to law school. <laughs> Wow. I always wanted to do law, but it just seemed a little intimidating for me. Perhaps I should have gone to the camp you went to. Yeah, that, that might have helped. I did pre-law in college and um, I, I like the, 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 um, the, you have to read all of the, all, every single case and the cases that were interesting were great, but the ones that were boring were so boring. Right. <laughs> I was, was like, so no, true. I can't do three years of this. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it, that was bad. Was My bad. parents, of course, being Jamaican, were heartbroken. Yeah. <laughs> right. Mm. They have to mourn the loss. Yeah, they really did. It was, it was, it was until like I got my third promotion in, in advertising was when they're like, oh, OK, we, you got <laughs> this. You know what you're doing. You I guess you can do that. Um, <laughs> so your father was a, a law enforcement officer. How did that shape your career in law and beyond? You know, he had tried, he had gone to law school and had that same experience. Like, I can't, I can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> so I sort of, I guess, accidentally picked up the baton. I didn't plan oh, wow. even to go to law school. Like everything I feel when people ask me, you know, people have different motivations. For me, it was God. It was another God moment. You know, mm -hmm. it was a woman at first in the hair salon. Mm -hmm. And I was working mm -hmm. for a radio station out here called um, 92.3 The Beat in LA, which was like um, one of the big stations. And I met a friend there and she had a court case. And I thought I'd show up with her for moral support. And I was talking all over the other attorney. I was, you know, and the judge warned me, if you talk again, you're not an attorney. You're just here for support. I'm going to have to ask you to leave. <laughs> Long story short, I get thrown out of the courtroom. 
But (laughs) the moment before I walked out, I turned around. I said, I will never be this powerless again to help Mm. the people that I love. And I walked, it was just this whole dramatic thing. And they were like, yeah, whatever. And I was like, (laughs) you know, but I was in law school like six months later. And so I accidentally picked up my father's baton um, and he was in law enforcement. So when I was talking a little bit earlier about the first day, you know, moving into the suburbs, um, we were pulled over. My father had been a um, deputy sheriff for about, I don't know, since I could remember. So maybe at that point, maybe 10 years. And he was transferred to the station out here in the suburbs. And we had our old station wagon. We had a few items like in the back of our Volvo station wagon. And it was me, my little brother, and my little sister. She was three. I was a couple of years older than she was. And my brother was a couple of years older. And my mom was sitting in the front. And I remember waking up at the Shell gas station and we were surrounded by deputy sheriffs with their guns drawn on us. Ooh. And my father was out there trying to explain to them that he was a he he has a gun, but he's a police officer like them. And they're just yelling at him to get on the ground and he wouldn't get on the ground. And I was like, oh, my God, we're going to die. Wow. And it was that moment that I knew that he was different than the other officers. And there Ooh. wasn't a day that I didn't want him to come home because I didn't know how he was going to get killed. Like who was going to hurt him. Mm, I didn't know if it was going to be the people he worked with, who he had to see the next morning. We arrived on Sunday night that because he had already moved stuff in. Uh, So Monday morning, he had to go to work with these people Mm. and telling, and he had to tell, you know, and they had to apologize and said, well, there was a robbery in the area and they, and the guy met your description. And my dad's like with children in the back, with you know it was like a you know all this so that was my first kind of experience with head-on racism as a child and seeing my father differently um so there wasn't a day so even now with the black lives matter movement which is righteous and all the um you know defund the police which i understand i can see both sides because Mm -hmm. like i said i wanted my father to come home every night and I also wanted my brother to come home every night. My cousins, my friends who were black and brown, I wanted them to make it. So I'm sort of, I could see both. And I've also been a victim of a crime and I've had to call the police and I needed that. I didn't need a social worker to show up. I needed protection. Yeah. So I've been in that. So I'm just, I try to be very realistic about it and having raised foster children, um, also dealing with the mental health system and I'm like, it's not an it's not an adequate play, it's not an adequate shift from one system to another. So when we talk about defund, there's so many things we need to be talking about. Wow. And I know that from my lived experience. Yeah. So my dad being an officer helped me to see things from a different storyline, I guess. Yeah. Wow. That was amazing. Um I literally visualized what happened to you at that gas station. Yeah, me too. I I don't think there's a moment that we're here um, in the suburbs feeling like we're safe, you know, like, and that we are absolved of everything else that's going on. And like, you look at everything on TV, you're not thinking, oh, that's happening over there. That's not happening here. And that's Mm -hmm. the, and that's, and that's the, the the challenge of what we've had to go through, you know, in America. And um, one of the things that I loved hearing about was the Redeem Project. 
Um, and I would love to know more about how you started that. But there's so much in your background that I've just heard that just is amazing to me. You know, fostering children. There's there's a lot here, Natasha. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to stay focused, though. So tell us about the Redeem Project and um, your challenges and successes with it. Well, so the Redeem Project actually stemmed from what I, I consider as a as a lawyer, as a professional, to be one of my greatest failures. So I was representing a, my friend's husband who had, um, when he was 18, he had killed a grandmother by accident, was driving um, and just lost control of the car. A woman, she had no seatbelt, made a left in front of him and just, he destroyed, and he was speeding um, and just, she lost her life and he spent time in she he spent time in prison after she passed away mm-hmm. and it was tragic all the way around so now he's 40 years old trying to do his work trying to travel and you know there's countries you can't go to obviously with a felony canada is one um mm-hmm. england there's a lot of places that really limit your mobility for felonies mm-hmm. um and he so he had to live with this even though he was very high in his career it was difficult for him to even you know, cause you have stuff around the country, you know, the world is so much smaller now you go yeah. everywhere. Um, it's different now with zoom, but back then we didn't have that. So we had to go. And I remember being with him and I was like, okay, well, this is a, this is a death that you caused. So it's going to be difficult to get it expunged and erased and sealed. Um, it's not like, you know, a drug thing or shoplifting or even domestic violence. So I said, it's going to be really difficult. So let me put this together. All you have to do is retell the story, what happened that day and tell me if you're sorry and things like that. And I remember he kept calling me and saying, okay, so what am I supposed to say? I said, you just tell, retell the story of the day. What happened? Okay. And then he called me back like three days later. I'm really trying to do this and it's really hard. Can you give me, and I mean, at one point I remember getting frustrated And I was frustrated because I was thinking to myself, I didn't tell him this, but I was like, I have the hard part. I have the hard, all you have to do is tell the story. And I left out the part that didn't occur to me at that time of the worst day of your life. All you got to do is write it. Mm -hmm. And I felt like later, even though we would go on to win, it would be sealed and it would be erased. And he's crying at the podium next to me in front of the judge. And I'm like patting him on the back. And we walked out. It was like, it wasn't until I walked out, what did I feel convicted? Like mm-hmm. you won, but did you treat this human right? Could you have cared for my child? Because I believe we're all children of God. I was like, did you care for him the way that you would have wanted to be cared for? And I knew that I hadn't. So I felt empty. So I started Redeemed mm-hmm. to be able to pair professional writers with lawyers. So the professional writers who know what it's like to walk through pain and, and tell the story in a logical way. Mm-hmm. And they ha- we have that empathy and that compassion. Because when I'm in my lawyer brain, I'm just sort of out there like, go get them. You know, it's like a different person. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't tap into the compassion that I needed to help him. And I felt so guilty. So I started redeemed. He doesn't know this, but I started it because of that experience. Like he's happy, he's moved on with his life. He's doing these great things. He he sends me thank you cards and things, but I felt guilty. So I started this to help 
people like him. So that's where Redeem came from. And so we've been erasing records and we just started um, the Clemency Project to help people who've been in prison for a long time. Are you working at all with Kim Kardashian? I just, you guys happen to be in the same place. I know she's involved with a lot of this stuff. So that's why I'm asking. (laughs) No, I don't. I don't know Kim Kardashian. I'm glad that she's out there because, and that she's doing the work. However people feel about her. The fact is that people who do this work, like we're not paid for this. So even as an attorney, we're volunteers. Everybody working in clemency work are volunteers. They're lawyers who are already overworked who are, who have a passion and a heart for it, mm-hmm. you know, who are like, you know what, I'm going to take my weekend with my family and I'm going to spend it working on this case. Mm-hmm. So, and it's everybody it's whether it's Kim Kardashian or John legend, he's uh, worked with one of his, somebody that he recently helped to get clemency. Um, yeah. So it's just, it's just a heart thing. Like, you know, it's the right thing and nobody's paying attention to you or what you're doing. Cause it takes a long time. So it's not like sexy right. unless you're Kim, Kim Kardashian and you get that success that happens like that. But usually it's a long walk and it doesn't always turn out like you want it to. Wow. Wow. So amazing. So um, all the great work that you're doing and we, we have this novel, Grace, and we know that you have a new book coming out. You know, congrats on that. Can you tell us a little bit about it? We know it's coming out in November, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Thank you so much for asking about it. So it's set in 1930 Los, thir- in 1930 Los Angeles. So it's a Black woman who awakens to the fact that she may live forever just as she finds a love and a city worth dying for. So it's about our history. It's Black history in LA. It's not Hollywood. People say, oh, it's the golden age of Hollywood. I'm like, okay, so tell me how many Black people you remember in those Hollywood films. (laughs) But you know what? The fact is there were Black people here, a lot of Black people, Black, Brown, Asian. So what what was their life like to live in a city that worshiped, you know, whiteness and white culture and things related to them and we were erased. Um, So I wanted to tell that story. Um, So like for instance, Charlotta Bass who lived here was the first um, vice presidential candidate for the United States of America. I know we talk about Kamala, which I'm proud of what she's accomplished, Mm -hmm. but it was actually Charlotta Bass out of LA, you know, (laughs) who was on the ticket. You know, so just uncovering all that history and W.E.B. Du Bois and Hattie McDaniel and just what it was like to be no, just a brown face in the audience. Mm. I need to read that. I love that. I love <laughs> the whole thing. I think one of my favorite books, and I tell these girls all the time, one of my favorite books that I've ever read was The Warmth of Other Sons by Isabel Wilkerson. Yes. And the story of the man who left Louisiana and moved to LA, it just literally warmed my heart to watch his whole life just kind of traject, you know, and mm-hmm. then, you know, he went through a lot of challenges though. So the journey was just amazing. Can't yep. wait to read that book. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, Natasha, you you seem to be a very busy woman. Just many, many hats, doing a lot of things that are quite inspiring, um, helping individuals in the community as well as your family. I heard you t- earlier talking about your mother and your son. Just, I, I would say you have a packed schedule. How are you able to balance this, given that we are also in a lockdown? 
That's a great question. You know, it's right now it's just trying to organize and giving myself grace to miss things, to not show up for things, to check in on how I'm doing emotionally, mm. redefining what self-care means. I mm. used to think self-care, you know, going to get your nails done, hair done. But then I realized um, um, just in my recent walk that self-care is not about escape. It's about doing things that are life-giving. So finding things that are life-giving to me, even if I'm the only one that likes it, even if it has nothing to do with nails and hair, like what is life-giving to me? And for me, it's writing, it's spending time with my family. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, doing devotional time. I was talking to Colette a second ago about how I just wake up, I have a prayer room. I enjoy doing that. I don't feel like I have to do it, but I enjoy, you know, seeing where, where passage is going to lead and what that means, you know, mm. what is that calling me to do? So things like that. Um, it's just, and that's how I find balance is organizing and also self-care um, in that life-giving way. Um, and, you know, keeping my calendar, like everything has to be on my calendar. I have to set alarms for everything to remind myself like, <laughs> yeah. okay, okay, okay. I got it. I got it. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of hard these days too, being in the house and all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, wait, is it Tuesday or is it Wednesday? Oh no, it's Sunday. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so we always talk about how our ancestors have shaped our, uh, you know, how we are as parents and, and, you know, what we do. Uh, can you tell us how your life has been shaped by who raised you? That's a great question. Thank you so much. Um, my, I was raised by my mother and my father, you know, in a typical, um, I, typical is not really the right word. Um, I was just raised by my mother and my father. And for a period of time, my grandmother lived with us. Um, and I was raised in the church. So a lot of people got to spank your butt and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So in the black church, you know, everybody village, had a hand in that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it is. But also my track coaches. You know, I ran track, my basketball coaches, all of them spoke life into me and encouraged me. Mm. Um, and that's what, to me, they're all part of that lineage. My cousins were mostly in Alabama. So all my other family is mostly in Alabama, mm. um, where they still are. And I visit them. That's why I wrote my first book, Grace, was set in the town that they were raised in, that my parents were raised in, um, which was a town that they never left until the 1970s. So we were we were American slaves, African slaves in America. Um, and once we were free, um, we stayed there and in a way afraid to leave because it was the home of the Confederacy. And so when all these edicts were coming down, like you're free, they were like, no, we're looking around, we're seeing this, this is not true because they're still here. It has a president and everything. Um, so all, so we stayed pretty much in that same. So when I think about my ancestry, I think about how much resilience they have. And when I think about Black women or Black people, I think about how high functioning we are in trauma. Mm. So even with everything that's going on, even with all the stress we have, I thank God for that resiliency because we are the survivors, mm. the, you know, especially the ones who can trace their lineage back to that, yeah. that sort of devastation. We're the survivors. We're the ones with with incredible resiliency. But as a part of that, I always have to think there are things that I don't want to carry into the future. There are some bad habits. There are some bad types of ways of being 
that I don't want to pass on to my children, which I'm very particular about, you know, because they say we do as we've been done by, but we can also change that by being aware of it and being somebody else. So I try to treat her, I try to treat my children. I have a son and a daughter. My son is, has special needs. So he's just loved. We just love him all the time. He's 14. My daughter's 15, but given her space, especially during COVID, because what I remember about trauma, including my own, is that what I remember most are the people, the way people made me feel, the way they loved me, the way they said a good word to me. That's mm-hmm. what she'll remember in this time of COVID about home life. Even mm-hmm. though the world is burning down, she doesn't have her homework done. She'll remember it that I was like, okay, well, let's talk about this. What can I do to help? That's what I want her to remember. Mm-hmm. Plus she's at a really pivotal age. You know, you're just finding who you are and what you want to be like, and then not to have your friends around you. It's a different yeah. time with COVID being 15 and a girl. Yeah. And she's finding her way. They're doing FaceTime. You know, it, it started yeah. off really, it was really hard. It was hard as a parent to watch, but then yeah. to see her slowly, because I didn't try to fix it. I didn't try to fix it for her. And that was part of when we talk about what we learned from our ancestors. I grew up in the, in the, what is it? The, what did they call it? My generation is generation X. Like we had no name. We were the generation who was (laughs) left at home. We, we had notes on the fridge, stuff like that. Like we didn't have people caring for us. We, we, we created it. We created our fun. So to see that part of her brain click on and now she's doing things and finding her own way makes me proud. So when you look at the new year, what do you envision for the future of Black America? I mean, everything is just so different now. We have just been through some of the most unpredictable, underestimated years in this country. And I think not one of us can say that we're walking out of this the same as we were before, not yesterday, not three months ago, not a year ago, not four years ago. Um, And specifically with what you do, I wanna find out more about how you feel about how it's going to affect us when it comes to black mothers raising boys, you know, Mm -hmm. raising young boys. And I guess young children in general, but really young boys have been just kind of the focus of everything that's happened over the past Mm -hmm. couple of years with you know, law enforcement. And so would love to hear your thoughts on, on these two questions. Yeah. You know, I have to start by just saying, I believe that mothers anyway, we are, we have to be people who foster hope in our children and hope Mm -hmm. in the world. I think we're the entertainers in our family, whether we like that or not, but we're also the fosterers of hope. Mm -hmm. And I have to keep reminding myself of that like the world and by hope I mean that this is not how it's supposed to be mm-hmm. there is something better that we have to move toward so I want my children to help me create that because I don't want to count myself out of the future yet um, but I want to help them to not make the same mistakes that we made um, but I want to I, I have hope for black people my son has special needs Um, So when I think of Elijah McCain, who was killed by police, because my son is what they call Mm nonverbal. So he doesn't have autism, but he can't speak. But and he's also slow. So he's and we're trying to teach him right now 
you know, now that he's 14, it was okay when he was three that he liked to like, you know, talk it very close to people's faces or slap them when they slap their butts or their backs when they walk by because he thought it was funny. I'm like, you can't do that, son. You're, you know, you can't, especially you can't be, and I'm afraid for him for his disability. And I think about the video listening to what happened with Elijah McCain, which was the last video I could listen or watch. And he's saying, I'm not like that kind of black guy. You know, he has, he's high functioning uh, or autistic. And he's saying, I'm not that kind. And they're steady, you know, hurting him and hurting him mm-hmm. worse. And, mm-hmm. and, I'm, and I'm, I'm afraid for my son. And I can't, because of his uh, mental health or mental condition, um, he doesn't understand. So I'm very, I try to keep him close to me. So what does it mean to, for other Black boys and other Black people? I think that we have to create safe environments for us. My hope is that in all the ways we've built this country, that we can turn it on ourselves and build good things for ourselves. As an attorney, you know, because there was a point when, like when I found out that my son had special needs, when I thought he was going to die at this one point, I said, I have to leave corporate America, which meant a lot of things. One, that I wasn't going to be living the same standards that I had been. I had to get rid of the nice cars and the nice things to mm-hmm. focus on his care. But I said, what if everything that I've been doing to make other people rich and make other people have good careers and have good reputations, what if I turn that into my family? into my people. I have this little microcosm of a world in my household. What if I turned it on us? And I think if every Black person thought about how they could use the skills that have helped to empower and make other people rich and to build this country, including the White House, if we started turning that onto ourselves in our own households, starting there, and then work our way out to build for ourselves, I think we can create safe places where it doesn't have to be like that. Mm. That's my hope for 2021 is that we'll beginning, we'll begin building. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. This was fantastic. <laughs> I mean, your, your career is just so far is just beautiful. And I would look forward to kind of keeping an eye and seeing how things are going with you um, and all that you have accomplished. I can't wait to buy your book. I can't wait Yay. to read it. Tell, tell us where we can find you and we'll share all the information that you have. Oh, thank you. Okay, so I'm at NatashaDion.com, and Natasha is spelled N-A-T-A-S-H-I-A. So it's kind of like Alicia, you know, but it, you say oh, okay. Natasha. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Dion is D-E-O-N. My mother named me, and that was how she wanted to, I don't know. I don't know. I just accept it. I receive it, and there it is. <laughs> um, and then on Instagram, I'm just, my name, Natasha Dion. Facebook, Natasha Dion. Twitter is the same. And do you have any anything else coming up that you'd like to share with us? Mm, so it's, you know, right now it's just gearing up to the book launch in November. And so in the book world, I'm considered to be on the fall calendar. So, you know, the spring has to come first and the summer calendar, and then it's the fall. So there's all these books before. So I guess if there's any people praying out there, you know, just pray that, it's not forgotten and all everything that's going on in the world right now and just support like when it's available pre-ordering the book it'll really help because like list and things they look at like the first 
I think it's six weeks that the book comes oh, out wow. or okay. the pre-sale. So like you've done everything in that first, actually before it comes out. So I'm just hopeful that people don't forget and they remember. Thank we you. are never going to forget you. <laughs> How can we forget you? Thank you so much. But thank you. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. Thank you. And I hope you guys do well in this season. And I know it's crazy, but I'm cheering for you. Cheering for We're us. cheering for you. We're cheering thank for you. you. <laughs> thank, you. thank you. Thank you so much. All the okay. best. All right. You too. Thank this you. was amazing. Bye-bye. Thank you. It's all about the sauce. The sauce. The sauce. Boy, come and taste the sauce. The sauce. The sauce. She won't give you junk food. I will give you sauce. She will give you Thank you for listening to Tea and Talk. If you like what you heard, please like, share, subscribe, and comment. Until next time. When she give you subway, I will give you saltfish. We Caribbean girls are trendsetter. We wind better, we wind better. When you find ways like you find treasure, we wind better, we wind better. Cause everybody know we are go-getter. We wind better, we wind better. And we sweet like a dozen love a letter. We wind better.